So there's, there's fear, but there's anger. And they exist together. And the students have started to express this. They've started to find the words to express how they're feeling. And one child raised his hand and said, Miss, I know you can't do anything, but I can't do this anymore. I can't live like this anymore. I come to school, I wear a mask all day, I sit in this seat for five and a half hours, I go home, I do my work, and I come back the next day, and nobody sees us, and all the class starts nodding. Oh my God. And he said, I know you can't save us. And I just stopped and I interrupted him and I said, watch me. Welcome to the Speakeasy with Kate Wand, a safe space to discuss liberal ideas. Stacey Lance is a public school teacher in Ontario, Canada. In her powerful and heartbreaking essay, The Kids Are Not All Right, she depicts the devastating impact of ceaseless COVID restrictions on children in her classroom and beyond. In it, she calls for a return to normal life and an end to the bureaucratic policies that aren't making society safer, but are sacrificing our children's mental, emotional, and physical health. We sat down to discuss the immense trauma being inflicted on children, the urgency of ending the damage now and tending to the enormous wound, and the importance of every individual speaking up and defending the most vulnerable and important members of society, the kids. You've taken a, a principled stance that I'm sure was difficult to do mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, it was. I mean, I, I've been waiting. I've almost been waiting for the opportunity to take a stand. It, it, was, it was as if the environment wasn't right. And I, every time I would try to speak up, I, I could feel that it wasn't well received. And then as time went on, I started to get, you know, more and more hurt and more and more frustrated and, and I felt disgusted with what was going on to the point where it was like, okay, I can't wait anymore. I can't sit here and just wait for an opportunity because I don't think there's going to be an opportunity if I don't create one. Hmm. And it took many, you know, conversations and many connections to get kind of to a place where, where I was being heard. Um, but it was time. It was beyond time. And I had tried in my own little ways, but I just, yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't enough. Did you feel like it was that way with your colleagues, with other parents, just in general? Do you feel like there's just been a shift in the mood now where mm -hmm. after almost two years, People are seeing how much it's affecting their children, all yeah. of these regulations and restrictions and limitations and things that are really harmful, knowingly harmful for children mm -hmm. um, that are being stretched out to infinity. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we've lived in a world for the past two years where follow the science, follow what the data is telling you. And I mean, now we have the data that they're not okay. These mm -hmm. kids are not okay. And it was a, it was a gut feeling for me at first, but... With time, I started to see the data, see the suicide rates, see the addiction rates, the you know eating disorders and and and, and the depression rates, and it's I 
I can't pretend it doesn't exist anymore. It's staring me in the face. And, and then the, the conversations start to shift around, well, what are we going to do about this? Are you going to stand up with me and say something with colleagues? And colleagues are expressing, hmm. what are we doing? What is our role? Why, why are we pushing these rules if it's hurting these children? I can't do this anymore. So it shifted in me. It shifted in my work environment. And it shifted in parents. Parents are seeing their vibrant, happy, loving children just crumble. Yeah, yeah. And they come from good homes too. You know, it's not it's not just vulnerable homes. It's it's all kids at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is something that is really close to people's heart, and and we have this culture of silence that's mm -hmm. developed around COVID and all of the policies, and you know, it's also been besides just follow the science, also trust the experts right. as well, right? So regular people, I think, have been made to feel like their opinions don't matter. Yep. And so then that falls into the category of parents, you know, and feeling like I don't have a say in what's going on with my child at school. Like, we'll just go along to get along mm -hmm. because this is, this is how it is. And how can I do anything about it, right? You know, like they, I know that they disagree. I, I've seen them in my life and I'm sure you have in yours, yeah. right? But now it's come to a place where we also know that in other jurisdictions, things are really different, yes. you know, like, and I think this is in your piece as well. In Iceland, you know, people go to school without masks. They've done massive studies and, and shown that the regulations that they have and the restrictions are not actually changing anything right. in terms of COVID numbers. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And that gives you the confidence to say, this is wrong. If everywhere else is doing it differently and seeing similar, even better results, what we're doing is wrong. And it give, gave me the confidence to stand up because I kept feeling like, sit down. You shouldn't be talking about this. You should be doing what the experts say. Mm -hmm. And that's why... I have said, I am an expert. I am an expert. I went to school to be an educator. Mm -hmm. I have worked in this field for 15 years. I am an expert at watching little changes in our kids that maybe a parent is missing, maybe you know an educator who isn't paying attention is missing, but I pick up on the smallest little shifts in these kids. Yeah. And that's how as an educator, we're trained to intervene. And I, I don't know if it comes from my background. I don't know if it comes from my life experience, but I feel, I feel their pain. I feel what they're going through Yeah, and I'm carrying it and it's heavy. Yes. And yes. it's just, it's, it's enough. Like it's yeah. enough. Well, this is one of the things that I find has been really painful to watch. You know, it's it's clearly dehumanizing mm -hmm. to do this to children. Mm -hmm. And I've been watching it, you know, from another perspective. But for you to actually be in the classroom and in a way functioning against your morals, mm -hmm. you know, and against your integrity. Yep. And and having that feeling maybe a little bit of, of a double life mm -hmm. in the sense of I'm not being true to myself. I can't. I don't feel like I can be true to myself, you know, and in this piece, um, you talk about how there are things that you 
want to to say to yeah. reassure the children that you would have said, you know, a few years ago, but you feel like you can't say them. Yeah, I f- I feel I'm a I'm a person of very strong moral integrity. And I show up to work every day, I walk in that building and I literally in my head say to myself, you're doing this for them. They're not coming here for you. So you're showing up for them. And then every action I make throughout my day is on that, that principle, yeah. that I'm there for them. So to walk in that building and just to see this slow disintegration of morale, of hope, you know, for a brighter tomorrow. And it's been hard to kind of keep my, you know, it's okay, guys, we're almost there. This is, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna have our lives back soon. Like I've had to be almost that cheerleader for them, but inside, I'm carrying this heavy burden of doubt and doubt in, is this gonna get better? But also doubt in myself. Am I doing enough? Am I saying enough? Am, am I noticing their pain enough to intervene before it's too late? Yeah, yeah. And it just, it's gut-wrenching, it's traumatizing. Yeah. And I think this Christmas, I had the opportunity to sort of sit down and feel what I'm feeling because it's go, go, go until you stop. And mm-hmm. then when you stop, you realize this is traumatic. This is traumatic as a teacher. It's traumatic as a mother. And I'm carrying this pain of parents who've contacted me saying, please keep an eye on my child. Please keep an eye on my child and tell me if you see any changes. And to witness our friends speak up about their child and to witness my you know, colleagues speak up about their child. And we all are just carrying a sense of hopelessness. You know, what can we do? Yeah. So yeah. I don't even recognize this, you know, the world right now. Well, I think that it's kind of like, you know, recently we did a video on the Soviet Union and it was detailing what the everyday life looked like, the mundane things. And this was in the 90s. So it was, you know, near the very end. And what you saw there was a really demoralized populace. Mm-hmm. And just kind of gray faces, you know, on these dreary looks. And, you know, you look at this two-year span of this being applied to children. You know, and this is creating patterns for their whole lives. Mm -hmm. Right? And I mean, they, they are suffering and they're also invisible in their suffering even more because physically they've become invisible with the masks. Yeah. And and they hide behind them. You know, I, I've seen children do this and, you know, you have as well. Yeah. We all have. Children also, they want to belong, you know, and they, they, um, they're they still developing their self-esteem, right, and their conscientiousness. Mm-hmm. So you put them in this mask. Like, what have you seen as an effect on children? Just because of that, like, if we could just zone in a little bit on that. On the mask. Yeah. Uh, I'm seeing an increase in social anxiety, for sure. This idea that we don't want to speak up, we don't want to be noticed. Even taking off the mask to eat, you can tell some of them feel uncomfortable. Um, I've had students tell me, I like the mask, I like hiding behind the mask. Mm. And then you have the opposite. The students are like, when can I take this off? When can I take off this mask? I got vaccinated, why am I wearing this mask? So there's, there's fear, 
but there's anger and they exist together. And the students have started to express this. They've started to find the words to express how they're feeling. And one child raised his hand and said, Miss, I know you can't do anything, but I can't do this anymore. I can't live like this anymore. I come to school, I wear a mask all day, I sit in this seat for five and a half hours, I go home, I do my work, and I come back the next day, and nobody sees us. And all the class starts nodding. Oh my God. And he said, I know you can't save us. And I just stopped and I interrupted him and I said, watch me. And that's when I started to really press. That's when I sent out letters to every level of government, every MPP, every health unit, every school board trustee. And I put it in writing, our children are hurting. You need to help them now before it's too late. Don't say you didn't know. Yes. Don't say you didn't know because I'm telling you right now. And I have had many conversations with that student since. And I said, I'm trying. I'm trying for you. I'm trying. And he's thanked me profusely because he just wants to be seen. And whether anything comes of my, <laughs> you know, my efforts, at least he knows someone is trying. Yeah. Yeah, so that's somebody, what they're feeling. They're feeling invisible. Yeah, because, mm -hmm. you know, that's what adults' function is supposed to be for children, is to protect them yeah. and to represent them and to and to be their voice. Like, they do not vote. They do no. not have, you know, yeah. <laughs> even though some people might want to reduce the voting age for, for specific reasons that we might not want to go into right here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, adults are there to represent the needs of children and to protect them. Absolutely. Right. And yep. so and so and and to be a model for them. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's that's really good that that you're able to do that and they can actually feel like, hey, you know what? Somebody is doing something and that can maybe uh, keep that hope there for mm -hmm. them. And I you know, I it's important that I say that the, the thing that, you know, really motivates me is that I was that child who wasn't seen. You know, I was the child who seemed fine, seemed motivated, seemed to have her life on track. But I came from a home where my father died of cancer when I was young and my mom was addicted to opioids. And I went to work every day, or sorry, school every day, smiling, looking fine, looking like everything was fine. And I was that kid that needed someone to see me. And I had so many good teachers who just took me and, and, and brought me to a place in my life where I could stand on my own two feet. Mm. Whereas these kids exist in a world where they're constantly being knocked down while the adults around them are saying, you belong there. That's where you need to stay right now because that's for the greater good. Yes. When are these kids the greater good? They are the future. They are the ones who are going to be taking us out of this mess. So when are they the primary concern? So for that kid in my class who goes home to a great family, if he feels knocked down, unseen, how does the kid who's going home to an abusive home or a home that's you know experiencing food insecurities and, and they get their food at school, I mean, how do those kids get out of this situation in one piece? Yeah. You know, it's funny because 
there's a lot of problems with the public education system, you know, mm-hmm. that have been there for a long time mm-hmm. and have been exposed throughout this. But there's a dichotomy there because you also have exactly what you're saying, where there are some children who need to be in school. Yes. And whether it should be privatized or, you know, run by governments is questionable. But that establishment needs to exist in that sense. Yeah. So there are safe places to go and there are adults to be around who will look out for them. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And so in your classroom, what what's the feeling like? What does it feel like when you walk into a classroom nowadays compared to three years ago? Can you remember <laughs> the there's less socialization. There's less excitement. And I'm trying really hard, like I'm paying attention to that and I'm trying to kind of instill that back in them. So yeah. for instance, yesterday they got off topic. They're talking about prom. And I was like, I'm here for this. Like, keep going, keep talking about prom. You can spend all class talking about prom because it was those fundamental little moments in the day that these kids used to thrive off of are missing. Mm-hmm. It's just like the soul is missing out of the school. It's like they come in, they sit down, they do their work and go home and they have nowhere to unload this heaviness. They're reminded all day that they're in a crisis every day. Yes. And that's traumatic. Yes. They hear it on the news. They hear it in the conversations with their parents. They witness it when they come into school and have to put a mask on. They have to hand sanitize before they go in every room. Yeah. Constant reminder that we're in a crisis. Yeah. And never a chance to just be a kid. They're they're made to feel like little pathogens mm-hmm. that are just, you know, spreading their germs and they're going to uh, you wrote about one uh, person specifically having fear that they would kill somebody, mm-hmm. you know, and this has been ingrained into children this fear which is totally based on a falsehood. Yeah. That they will be responsible for killing their elders and their family. Yes. And it started at, you know, at the start of the pandemic and even just shaming them for being a kid. Mm -hmm. You know, people taking pictures of our youth playing basketball, putting it on social media, saying, what are these kids doing? They're supposed to be at home. Oh. And it's just like they're being a kid. You can't you can't look at this pandemic through through the eyes of an adult. You have to look at it through the eyes of a child and to these children. You've taken everything fun out of their life. You've taken every interaction out of their life. Yes. You've destroyed the foundations that they stood on. They they miss a grad and we say, well, it's not a big deal. To them, it's everything. Yes. We forget what it's like to be a child and we have to stop looking at their world from an adult perspective. So part of the thing that happens is that people pass on their traumas intergenerationally, right? And you can do work on this, but if you're, if you're not doing the work, which most people are unconscious about, you know, they, there are not many people who will go into that uh, path, you know, because we all come with that. We all have experiences that, that shape us positively, negatively, and in between. Mm -hmm. So you look at it that way and it's, it's very easy at home to kind of forget maybe about what's going on because in order to really empathize with your own child, Mm -hmm. you have to empathize with your inner child and you have to empathize with yourself and what it felt like, you know, you have to kind of reconnect with that 
And because we all have deficiencies in self-compassion to a certain degree or other, I think it can be harder to empathize with your own children yeah. in some sense. And then if you really kind of stretch that out for people who have vast degrees of, of empathy lack for children in general, mm -hmm. and you imagine how they treat children in public, mm -hmm. right? And then you bring them home. You know, those are the people yeah. who are screaming like for more and more and more damaging restrictions. Mm -hmm. But then you, you take them home and you imagine how much worse it is in their households. Right. And I think that's what we've lost is this ability to empathize, to really say, this might not be my experience, but it's somebody's. Mm -hmm. And so to hear a choir of parents crying out, saying, my child is suffering. Please help my child. Please do something to change these rules. And to have that be met with, well, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Don't be selfish. <laughs> Maybe just maybe that the fear of their child breaking is more than their fear of, of the pandemic. And we have to learn that not everyone has the same life. And some of our children are, I mean, after all this time, like they're broken and nothing else should matter right now. Like it, it's, I just feel we've lost our way. I don't know how we can find our way back. Yeah. But the anger and the hate and the these abusive statements that come, you know, from a place of fear are only making it worse. Yeah. And how can we ever start to repair this damage if the adults are too busy fighting? And that's what's happening right now. Right. There's a really good Nietzsche quote and he talks about what if, you know, we were to live at the expense of the future? Mm -hmm. You know, that mm -hmm. would be like the ultimate mediocrity and mm -hmm. comfort if you would. And I, and I think that there's a point there, you know, and he wrote this pre-World War I. And we see a continuation of this now. We're kind of in this post-war era where most of the people who've lived through the Second World War, you know, are, are gone or are close to the end of their life. And so we have a society that's, you know, has a lot of comforts and there's a lot of mediocrity that comes with that as well. Right. Right. And so then is that maybe something to do with it, that people are just willing to sacrifice their own children because they're so disconnected from, um, from their spirit in a sense, like they're, they're, they're not in tune with themselves, you know, and that comes with the mediocrity and the comfort. And so then, they're not empathizing with their children either. Yeah, I, I, I feel like from, from what I'm gathering from even myself and talking with other people is we are so fatigued from it all that we're almost numb and mm. we've turned off. We're in cruise control. We're trying to get to the end. Yeah. And by doing that, we're turning away from this, what has been called the shadow pandemic of our children who are breaking. Yeah, yeah. That will then make them numb. That will then make them disconnected. Yes. And then that's perpetuates the state the of our future. Yeah, it right? perpetuates that. It's yes. that generational trauma. Mm -hmm. And we're going to see that. We're going to see that. Like my concern is specifically for the education system where we have a lot of parents have distrust towards the education system right now. 
They have anger about their child being, you know, taken out of school, teachers not speaking up, this, this fighting between government unions, teachers. There's anger there. And my worry is that once you have this distrust in an education system, that gets passed on to your children, mm. to your children's children. Mm -hmm. And you've then taken an institution that should be one of stability, warmth, compassion, and we've taught our children to not trust it. Yes. And for some people, that education system is where they should get their warmth, they should get their love, they should get their stability, and they're now being raised to question it. Yes. So before this is too far gone, we need to allow these children to flourish again. There is seeds of trauma in these children and they're just gonna bloom over time. And we may not see the damage now, we might see it in 10 years, we might see it in 20 years, but we have to act like we know it's there and that we're trying to take care of it now. So there's a, a massive disconnect there, you know, and, and, and I think that we should be able to say it freely that the government does not have our best interest uh, at heart right now, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that they're, they're damaging these children and they know that they're damaging them and they, they don't care. So mm -hmm. this is just history rhyming with the past. That's right. We have the evidence, so to speak, that the children are not okay. Yeah. And there seems to be this constant reminder that they're an afterthought. They're an afterthought in all of this. Mm -hmm. And whether it's intentional or not, to me, doesn't matter. We know it's there. What are we going to do about it? Yeah. Where are the resources to help us deal with this crisis? Yeah. Better yet, can our policies reflect the true risk to these kids from this virus? Right. There is a disconnect between what these children are expected to live out and how in danger they are really from the virus. Yeah. And I worry that every day we impose these rules, we are creating damage that's way worse than the virus will be to them. Yeah. And that's not to say that a child will never get ill from COVID, but we're turning away from hospital wards that are bursting at the seams from eating disorders and the mental health crisis that's unfolding. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. a crisis. Mm -hmm. We spend all this time talking about hospital capacity. It's a government-made crisis. Yes. It's a man-made crisis. Yes. Yeah. And hospital capacity is also happening in our pediatric wards. So can we protect that? Because we don't have the resources to deal with that. As an educator, I don't have the resources to, to be a therapist as well. Yeah. yeah. And sadly, I am that front line. Yeah. I'm the front line because some children have to wait for help. They have to wait years for help. Well, you know, this is what happens when you have this myopic focus mm -hmm. on just dealing with one aspect of something. Yes. You know, and, and on destroying everything else on your path to just attain that one goal. It's very utilitarian, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> and so it doesn't, nothing else matters, right? As long as you're moving towards that, that one singular goal. So how do you think that it's possible? Like what, okay. How do you think it's possible 
to to get out of it and and my secondary question to that is that would include knowing who is really controlling the 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 restrictions and regulations around schools and around children like where is that kind of power source coming from it's making those calls i don't even know the answer to the question because i've tried <laughs> to get answers i've talked to every level i've talked to every medical officer of health and it's this constant deflection to someone else well they're making me do it well they're making me do it yes bureaucracy yes bureaucracy you know what yeah how about we bring these kids back to 2019 how about we let them live their lives that's step one mm -hmm. remove restrictions on children because they can't breathe mm -hmm. and then step two is where's the help that we need to deal with the mess that's on the floor? Yeah. Because it needs to be cleaned up and it's going to take years and it, we need a lot of money. We need a lot of money. We need a lot of help. We need a lot of time. Yeah. Because just simply removing restrictions isn't going to remove the trauma. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I don't know who's in charge. I don't know if anyone will ever be held accountable for yeah. this. And that's the part that bothers me the most. Yeah is will we have to wait 20 years to hear an apology and to hear I should have known better and this is how we're going to fix it. Yeah. This is what we're going to do so it never happens again. Yeah. Because that's needed. So that's from what I've learned, what happens with very heavy handed bloated bureaucracies, right? Like it's a way of mm -hmm. no one being able to pin the tail on the donkey. Mm -hmm. And so then you just run around in wheels and everybody's pointing, you know, oh, well, this person's responsible or this institution is responsible. Right. So there's no actual person. And I'm sure, you know, I've written some letters as well to officials. And have you noticed that when they write back to you, nobody signs it? They'll just say like the office of Christine Elliott or mm -hmm. whatever it is. Yeah. There's no actual signature. Yeah. Yeah. And now I have for the medical officers had some, you know, personalized, well thought out responses. That's good. It's a start. It's some measure of accountability. But then yeah. at the same time, you know, uh, talk is cheap. Mm -hmm. I agree. <laughs> so, I agree. Well, listen, you have these children doing these climate marches and getting involved in all kinds of things that are student led, but that are also, you know, kind of teacher led mm -hmm. in some situations. Like, wouldn't that be a possibility to just say, you know what, I have nothing left to fear. Like the fear of my own career, you know, and the fear of these children and what they're going to, to continue to go through for the rest of their lives is, is less than my fear of actually taking uh, an action that will be loud and that will be noticed and saying, you know what, anybody who wants to join me, let's go. We're going to go on a march against the COVID restrictions together. We're going to go on a march for normalcy. We're going to take off our masks. We're not going to sanitize our hands. We're going to go out and play in the dirt. And we're going to hold hands and we're not going to sit there at lunchtime and not talk masks off, voices off. This is no longer happening. You know what? Anybody who wants to join me, come along. Yeah, I think think that would end poorly for a teacher. I really do. I'm sure it would. And <laughs> I'm sure it would. But you know, like, is there so what what would that look like? That's a great thing to explore. Why I is that almost difficult? feel like the youth themselves wouldn't buy in. Ah, yeah, because they have been told you have to do this, you have to, they've been conditioned, they have to sacrifice. And 
some will protest in their own ways in, in school, mm-hmm. but it's few and far between. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same way you teach kids to, to respect any other rule of the school. That's sort of what has become of it. Mm-hmm. I would like the opportunity for these children to be presented with the data and allow them to think critically about it because that's what's lacking, I find, mm-hmm. in these kids' lives, is the ability to come to their own conclusions based on what they're witnessing. So I really try to do a lot of that in my class because I teach morals and ethics. I try to present two sides of a story, allow them to discuss, allow them to you know, yeah. think about why one person might act the way they would or who's influencing someone. And I allow them to go through that process on their own. And we use a chart and they sort of, you know, they go through the chart. And I feel like with this situation, if we even look at masks, I had a child tell me, I just want to know, do they work? I just want to know, do they work? I want to know what's the data behind masks. That would really help me feel less guilty. Yes. Yes. But they don't have that. And... I was honest with her and I, and, and I presented it in a way, you know, I've read papers and this is what I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. And I didn't put words in her mouth and I didn't, you know, make any conclusions for her, but I just told her about, you know, certain things I had seen and read. And she just sort of said, oh, okay. And she sort of just took it and left. And I'm not sure it even processed. Okay. So there was kind of that that instinct in her that I want to get rid of this guilt. Mm -hmm. And I think the solution is to have the facts, Mm -hmm. but then presented with the facts and, you know, being told you can look at this for yourself and think about it. It was irrelevant. And I think that this is noteworthy because we have moved beyond facts. Obviously this is why we're here. Mm -hmm. Right. And so what we have is, a psychological and an emotional problem yeah right so there's this great guy that i i follow on youtube richard granin Mm -hmm. and he talks about a map of reality he says that when you've been abused you know your whole map of reality is altered Mm -hmm. you know and this is obviously what these children are experiencing so if you can put this just put a map in front of them that shows them this is what is real you know, like this is getting closer to, we can get into the debate about objective, subjective reality, all of that. But this is pretty much an alternate map to the lies and falsehoods that you've been told, but it can't be a factual map. It has to be a map that appeals to experience and emotion mm-hmm. and and heart. And right, like this is actually what life, what life is. You know, this is not how life should be. Like everything that you're experiencing here is not what it's supposed to be about. Right. You know, like maybe there's a way to do that. Like old movies, like things that, you know, come from a different era. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at that, you can see that this is not how things are supposed to be. Because one of the things that a lot of people are highlighting, and I'm sure you've, we talked about this before off camera, is that... Like children don't even, some of them don't even remember what it was right. like before COVID. So like to provide them with this map of reality that this is not mm-hmm. how life is supposed to be. I'm noticing that 
exactly what you said, where they feel like this is my life and I don't remember my life prior to this. And the worst part with children is they mature and they grow so quickly in the sense that they're not the same people they were at the start of this. Mm. And they're coming into their own in a world where they're not allowed to come into their own. They have to be a certain way and act a certain way. And they almost just don't know what life will be like without COVID. They can't talk about university. They can't talk about prom. They can't talk about any of these things because they don't want to go there because they don't, in their head, it's not happening. And I just feel like they don't have the ability to remember years prior, almost because they don't want to, because they- It's too painful. Too painful. Maybe part of it is by neglect. Maybe part of it is purposeful. Maybe part of it is just, you know, um, bureaucratic uh, people, busybodies running around trying to do different things. Like, I think that there's a combination of things, but I think that as a side effect, Mm-hmm. At least, at the very least, as a side effect for a society that wants to redirect around a central goal for all of humanity, you know, this this thing is not so important. In fact, it might be a good thing that children are so traumatized that they become compliant. I see it as a bunch of people who have completely lost sight of the plot, who are all just trying to look like they're doing something without actually thinking about the repercussions of what they're doing. And that's kind of where I sit is, I feel like we're at a point now where we shouldn't just have to look like we're doing something. We need to be doing the right thing. And the right thing is fixing where the biggest wound is. And so, it does lead me to wonder, well, why aren't we fixing it? Mm-hmm. We know it's a problem. Mm-hmm. What's stopping us from fixing it? Right. And worse, why are everyday people who have children turning away from it? Or even worse, defending it? Yes. And that's where I'm struggling is people like me who stand up, who put their neck out, who say this is wrong, morally, based on principle, based on values, based on my character, this is wrong. Why why am I being accused of having an agenda? (laughs) What's the Mm -hmm. agenda here? Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm not the one who has the agenda. Yes, it's kind of like projection. Yes. Right? I mean, this is something that, <laughs> people are, are are in abundance of projections mm-hmm. and especially when you know you you trigger all of these you know more um traumatized parts of them mm-hmm. right that's when they project mm-hmm. and so if you have this uh, we know now like there's been deliberate fear campaigns by the media like there there have been yeah. uh, behavioral scientists and teams who have who have been assembled by governments to create messaging uh, to stimulate fear in people and to 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 stimulate compliance in people. I was just reading this paper 
not long ago, and it was uh, they wanted to have different messaging around how to get people to comply with taking the vaccine, as an example, right? And it was different types of messaging. And so they're literally conducting psychological experiments on the population, yeah. you know, without their awareness. And so I think that that answers the question a little bit about why are some people just watching and why are some people really crying for more? Like it's, you know, I, I have a great, uh, great friend and colleague named Barry Brownstein, and he talks about how, you know, you want to get rid of your psychological trash, mm -hmm. right? So that's how you do it mm -hmm. is you push it outwards. So people who are screaming, like, let's do more and, and all of this kind of stuff, like they're, they're, they're damaging these children, mm -hmm. you know, and it's all because they want to get rid of the feelings that they have, mm -hmm. the fear, the anxiety, the uncertainty, the anger, the rage, the hatred. Part of it is, is just wanting that to be gone. And so it's like, we need to find somebody and whatever camp we're yeah. in, whatever we believe in, right? Yeah. Well, we want to get rid of that. So we need this and this and that, and this will protect us. And, and they, they're just blind. They don't even think about the children. Yeah, I, I I absolutely agree with that. And that, you know, it just reminded me of at the start of all this, when all those commercials came out and you had your scene where they're partying, they're all gathered together and having a good time. And then it flashes to a um, hospital scene yeah. and someone's flatlined on the bed. And this is on primetime television. Children are watching, mm -hmm. you know, and they constantly see this messaging because, yes. you know, you're instilling this fear. And now after two years of that, we have to have the ability to realize that our fear is interfering with the recovery. So you're, you have this fear because you want to, your, your life to recover, but you're actually making it worse. Mm. You're making it worse by not equipping yourself with the data and with, with you know, facts that allow you to kind of let go. I mean, as a parent, I could have also went down the rabbit hole of worry. Yeah. But that's not somewhere I want to go because yeah. there's no data to support it. So I find comfort in knowledge and the fear is being transferred to the children. And I guess my only agenda is to highlight that and yeah. say, Look at me. I'm a normal human being. I'm a mother and I love my children and I am not affiliated with a political party or any sort of movement. Yeah. I'm not anti-vax. I'm not anti-anything. I'm desperate for people to hear me, to hear me that I'm telling you that we are witnessing the unraveling of an entire generation and I need you to see that. And whether you see it or not, should not discredit what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Instead, prove to me I'm wrong. Yes. You can't. You can't prove to me I'm wrong just because a student hasn't told you the same thing. You know, maybe the environment in my, in my classroom is different. Maybe they feel they can tell me things. Or maybe it is my childhood that allows me, you know, the, the suffering I went through allows me to kind of pick up on yeah. little changes in them that allow me to open that door of conversation. Yeah. It's in our vulnerability 
that we allow ourselves to be fully alive and to feel everything there is to feel and to, to be able to connect with that side of that child. So if we're not allowing ourselves because of fear to be vulnerable and say, I'm not okay. Yeah. I'm struggling with this. Let's find a solution. If we don't allow ourselves to sit in that, we're going to keep doing this. And the kids are paying the price, sadly. Yeah. So, <sighs> anyway, I just don't, I, 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 it, it's, it's hard for me to talk about now. And I would imagine when this is over, I'll need to talk about it. Yeah. It's that heavy. Yeah. Yeah. And I can recognize that. I can recognize that I find this quite traumatic. So what I, what I'm thinking about right now is that often like we're asking ourselves, how do we get out of these situations? And I've spoken to many people now over this last little while and, and read a lot and thought a lot. And I do think that it's an individual solution mm -hmm. that we need to these types of problems. So that's pretty much what you're doing. You're just trying to provide the best, uh, the best environment for these children mm -hmm. and for yourself, right? And to stay sensitive mm -hmm. among all of these things that are happening, that are external, that are out of your control. But the sum of all of our individual yes. choices is what actually does change things, especially when you look at this top heavy bureaucracy where nobody's accountable. Like mm -hmm. it, it, it truly is that, that is the solution. In my mind, you have everybody kind of behaving that way writing about it, talking about it, having private conversations with the children at school, trying to insulate as much around the situation to the point where there's enough people, there's that critical mass. Yep. And then you can say, okay, we're gonna knock this one down. This restriction is coming down. The whole thing is coming down. You know, like this all doesn't make sense, but there's enough, there's enough of, of a, a pressure there yeah. for it to, to dismantle. Mm -hmm right and fall yeah and i there's been a shift in the air there's something different and when it comes to children i think that's something different as parents finding the courage to say i'm not selfish for caring about my child i'm not selfish for wanting a better life for them that's my job as a parent yes and so you're starting to see parents find the courage to stand on their own two feet. And through talking with people after my article came out, I've received dozens of emails, just people who took a guess at what my email was based on wow. the, my school board, <laughs> thanking me, thanking me for speaking on behalf of their child, thanking me for giving them almost permission to, to be angry. Yes to be not okay with this. And I think, like you said, it's, it's, it's the, the sum of all of our anger that's going to move this. The sum of all our, of our disgust. When enough people stop and say, wait a second, what are we doing here? What are we doing to these kids who are carrying this burden that was never theirs to carry to begin with? When did we ever decide that it was our children's job to to do, to carry this, this heaviness and, and worse off, why didn't we all stand together earlier? Yes. 
It's in that reflection where you realize it wasn't okay. That's, you know what? I think that that might be a little bit of the crux, Mm -hmm. right? Is, is when you don't act courageously and upon your righteous anger and upon your moral convictions, what Mm -hmm. ends up happening is you feel shame, right? Yeah. And what does shame tell you to do? Either to project Mm -hmm. or to go and hide. Yep. Right? So you have that kind of people holding back or getting angry at the wrong people. Yeah. So I think that that's a really important um, thing to note is that maybe this is why people have held back for so long because that shame has also kept them bound to their silence. Absolutely. And now they're at the point where the the risks of staying silent are are too high. Mm-hmm. Right. And so and so they're coming out. I was I was sharing with you earlier about somebody that I know who had shared your article and and she's been against this for a long time and she's been holding it in and the article that you wrote gave her courage to finally go public and put it on Facebook and attach to your article say I've written to the principals and the school board and I want answers my children I'm noticing this effect in them yeah and so that's a beautiful thing yeah it's just um and let's hope people will We'll take that example. Yeah, I think uh, I felt deep shame for not doing enough. In my own little way, I I did what I could. I've done what I could. But at some point, we all have to say, if not now, then when? Our society is equipped with all of these tools that we've been waiting for to get out of this pandemic. Yeah. And our children are watching us. That's that's what bugs me the most, is our children are watching us sit back and say nothing. Or we keep their suffering within the walls of our home. And it's okay to not be okay with this. It is okay to have questions. It is okay to say my child is not okay. Because pre-pandemic, had you not done that, you would be labeled neglectful. Yes. That is our job as parents, that is our job as a society, is to come together as a safety net for our children. And even people who don't have children have reached out to me and said, thank you. Thank you for speaking up because I'm sitting here. I don't have kids, but I know this is wrong. Mm-hmm. And so if if I've accomplished anything, if, if, if it's one parent who says, you helped me, then it's worth the target on my back. Yeah. The target on my back for caring, for wanting what's best for our kids. I will take the heat if it means one parent has the courage to say my child is not okay because maybe then that child is going to now have a better life because of it. And we need to accept the fact that a lot of children's life paths have changed because of this. Mm. A lot of children are not gonna have the same life that they would have had had this not happened. You know, we've lost children from the education system. We've, We've exposed children to more abuse. We've given abusers permission to lock their child in. We now have virtual school that children can go to. So anyone who needs to be hidden can be. 
And that is terrifying. It's terrifying. So we need to have a hard look at what we're doing. We need to have a hard look at ourselves. That's where it starts is what am I struggling with? Because if you don't deal with your heavy backpack, you're passing that on to your child and your child is going to carry that backpack through their life. And they're going to have to either deal with that trauma or the cycle will continue with the next generation. And we need to get real with that. And that's, yeah. um, it's yes. a hard thing to deal with. Well, what would you say as a last, a last thing I'd like to ask you, what would you say to other teachers and parents who are feeling the same way? I would ask them to imagine themselves in 20 years when their grandkids ask them, what did you do? What did you do to help children during the time of the COVID-19 pandemic? What did you do to stop the trauma from happening? What do you want your answer to be for them? I wake up every day and my kids are watching and I have these real conversations with them, but I project myself into the future of when their kids ask me, grandma, what did you do to help your students? I wanna be able to say that I felt like an army of one. I felt alone, but I did it anyway. I did it anyway because that's what being brave means. You stand by your morals and you stand by your values and you do not stray from them. So anyone who's sitting on the fence and feels like what's happening is wrong, what do you want your answer to be in 20 years when you're asked, what did you do? Thank you for watching this film. If you value our work, please visit very-opinionated.com to help support our productions. <laughs>